Hello, everyone. Tom Fox and Mike DeBernardis back for another episode of The Corruption Files. We're uh, stepping back into 2013 once again to look at a case that perhaps didn't get as much press as it uh, should have at the time. It may seem very basic now, but I think after rereading it several times, we're going to discover that it still resonates today, and that's the Ralph Lauren FCPA enforcement action. So, Mike, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Looking forward to the discussion. So, Mike, this was a April 2013, the same month as Parker Drilling uh, Resolution. It was unique in several respects. Uh, the first was it was a non-prosecution agreement by the Department of Justice, but uh, equally interesting was a non, it was the first non-prosecution agreement by the Securities and Exchange Commission. The DOJ fined Ralph Lauren $882,000. The Securities and Exchange Commission had a total of $734,000. So just over um, $1.6 relatively small fine and penalty. Uh, the case itself is as about as basic as it can be. Uh, it occurred, or the violations occurred in Argentina, the company was having trouble getting its products, its clothing products, into the country. They hired an agent uh, to work with custom brokers, and that agent paid bribes from at least 2005 to 2009. The bribes were described as a variety of services on invoices, which were used to create the funding. The company instituted a worldwide anti-corruption program in 2010, and in the process of training in Argentina, one or more Argentinian Ralph Lauren employees came forward with information about this. So that's how this case started. turns out there's a fair amount to unpack there. Um, I guess uh, we were talking beforehand, Ralph Lauren was not expected to be on the FCPA writer. Uh, I've been a proud wearer of their clothes for a long time, and I feel like I have some knowledge into Ralph Lauren himself because he's so ubiquitous as an American icon. So... For them to be caught in an FCPA matter on a customs case, which was not something we typically saw back then or, or even now, I think is one reason why this stood out for me. Yeah, I agree. And I actually, I, I, I had intended to wear a, to wear a polo shirt uh, for this, but I, I, I uh, just, just kind of lost track of time here. But um, no, I, I think that is one of the, one of the revelations from this, right, was talk about a, what we assume was a low risk industry uh in 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 terms of retail and and this this action i think really was the first one that drove home the point to to all companies if you are doing business outside of the US doesn't matter what industry it is doesn't matter if you're selling to the government or or or, or not you have risk risk exposure when it when it comes to the FCPA and this showed it uh, the other thing was that after either in the training or through the training or after the training, Argentinian employees stepped forward. And it was not clear from the settlement documents whether it was something that was widely known within the Argentinian business unit or these employees had specified or special knowledge, I should say. Nevertheless, the fact that employees stepped forward after training, I also thought was significant. 
Yeah, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, the the, the documents, the non-charging documents, I'll call them, because they, they were MPA uh, MPAs, but uh, they talk about how at the time of the bribe payments, Ralph had no anti-corruption policy or program at all, at least that applied to the Argentinian subsidiaries. I think they had none up until shortly before the training in Argentina. And then they roll out the policy. It goes on the internet. Employees get it. They get one training. And kind of I, the way it makes it seem is that a, a number of people raise their hands and say, wait a second, we've been basically paying bribes to customs officials all these years. I have dealt with fewer now, but I have dealt with, with clients in my career who have said, you know, we don't have a formal program. We'd like to put one in place, but our employees know. Our employees know that, that you know, what, what our values are and what we stand for and what we do and don't do. And I think this is the perfect example of, of why just having the program and providing the training can be so important. Uh, the other thing that struck me was the amount of the fine and penalty. This is one of the lowest ones we've seen in this podcast series and, and probably one of the lowest ones around when you have in the, the 1.5.16 million range. Obviously, the costs are going to be much higher because of a worldwide investigation. But I thought both the DOJ and SEC were sending a signal with the amount of the fine and penalty as well. The fine and penalty in this one is interesting to me, Tom. I, you know, <clears throat> I think this one was hard to monetize because, you know, in a lot of these cases, you'll see, you know, a calculation of how much the company made from their profited or revenue generated from their corrupt scheme. Even in other customs cases, some of the panel peanut related cases, you could show how much they saved on customs and, and uh, you know, re-export fees or, or whatever it might be. Here, all they could really point to was the amount of the bribes paid. I think it was in the neighborhood of $500,000 or so, and they think in, in bribes paid over the course of this period. Very hard to monetize what they made off of it. And so I think on balance, depending on how you look at it, that the number could seem really low. I mean, it's low compared to, to some of the other cases that were resolved at the same time, or it could seem really high. I mean, you know, it's unclear what monetary value their bribe payments had. I'm sure they had some. Uh, and it's ultimately they paid they paid three times what they had ultimately uh, paid in, in bribe payments to these customs officials. So uh, I think this was probably a really tricky one for the, for the SEC and the DOJ both to to kind of come up with the right number. Mike, the um, lessons from this case are obviously now almost nine years old, but I wanted to read from both settlement agreements because in rereading this to prepare for this. Podcast. It struck me that some of the things they said in the settlement documents, as we said, were revelatory in 2013. And from the SEC non-prosecution agreement under remedy, remedial measures, it said uh, an amended anti-corruption compliance program and translation into eight languages, an enhanced due diligence procedure for third parties, an enhanced commission policy, an amended gift policy, in-person anti-corruption training, and then it went on to say that there was a worldwide review by Ralph Lauren of its operations, including operations in Italy, Hong Kong, and Japan, and no further violations were found, and that the revised compliance policies appear to be working on a worldwide basis. Some of these things, I think people think we've always done them, we're always going to do them, but I thought it would be good to maybe go back and, and think about in 2013, it was just after the FCPA Resource Guide First Edition came out in 2012, and there was still a debate about translating policies into languages. 
Uh, I worked at Halliburton where we had a English only business policy and that worked for communications with Halliburton employees. But many of the people outside the United States, obviously English was not their first language. And sometimes the nuances of Texan and English uh, were lost on uh, my colleagues across the globe. And so we were still talking about translations uh, and debating whether we needed to. So I even thought that, that in 2013, this was specifically noted by the SEC as a positive step. Do you remember the days when we debated whether we had to translate? <laughs> uh, I, I remember the days when the answer to the question of wh- whether your policies are translated or were as simple as, no, all of our employees speak English. And that was sort of the end of the conversation. But it's sort of f- silly to think about it now because it is not free, obviously, to, to do a proper translation of all the policies. But it's such a simple thing to make sure that all of your employees, wherever they are, and frankly, for some of the policies, your business partners can fully understand your policy. For a company, it's, an, it's just an easy win, right? It's, it's hey, look what we did. We have, we have these in every conceivable language that we would possibly need. And that's a, you know, as, as was pointed out, it was highlighted by the SEC as, as a really positive step they took. And it, it's really not one that takes an incredible amount of work. The other uh, areas I wanted to highlight were in, once again, things that may even just be table stakes now in terms of an investigation and uh, the pre-settlement of an enforcement action. But the Department of Justice noted that Ralph Lauren uh, cooperated extensively with, quote, real-time cooperation with the department, end quote, when did we talk about that last, um, conducting an internal investigation, voluntarily making employees available for interviews, making voluntary document disclosures. Uh, the SEC added uh, real-time cooperation with the uh, staff of the SEC, voluntary and complete production of documents and disclosure of information to the staff voluntarily providing translations of documents and voluntarily making witnesses available. Were you ever in a case where that those steps weren't made or weren't taken? I mean, it, no, I, not, not personally. I think if, if you look at all of the resolutions that, that we've seen in FCPA cases, those steps are often in them, not always, uh, but they are often listed as cooperating steps. What struck me here I think it's maybe a differentiating factor because and we, we, we touched on it, but haven't really highlighted it yet. Uh, this was quite remarkable in that it was a two NPAs, right? Uh, it was a, a SEC NPA, the first, as you mentioned, the first one for an FCPA case from the SEC and, and a DOJ NPA. I think that's an achievement, right? And you can, you can point to the fact that it was a small amount of bribes. I mean, you know, I think if, if we really got into it, we could we could argue about this whether this was just a really aggressive facilitation payment. They made a specific reference in the both the DOJ and SEC did that these were not facilitation payments; they were something more. But the differentiator to me seems to be the speed with which the company, from the moment it learned of these payments, to the moment it provided the information to the DOJ and SEC and started cooperating. I think I think I saw somewhere it was two weeks. From the, the moment they got there, they, they got the whistleblower saying, hey, I think I think we're making these payments to the moment they first contacted the DOJ and SEC being two weeks. That's a really fast turnaround. That, that's a that's an incredibly fast turnaround. And then if you add on top of that, this, sort of this timely, as you mentioned, cooperation, that likely to me, I mean, we're always speculating a bit here, but that likely to me was was the, the main differentiator that resulted in, in this um, pretty 
in terms of getting you know two MPAs, pretty lenient resolution for for RoughRN. And then the uh, the other way I've thought about it is RoughRN was rolling out its worldwide anti-corruption compliance program. They did not have one before. Uh, and in the process of that rollout is when they uncovered this bribery and corruption so that th they were well along their way uh, to remediating when they didn't know there was a problem. Now, obviously, should have known a problem, and they were spanked a little bit for that. But I thought uh, both the DOJ and SEC gave great credit to Ralph Lauren because of where this came out in the process of them rolling this out. And then when you add on what you said about their response after they found out about it, I really, in retrospect, think both the DOJ and SEC were trying to communicate to us, if you're aggressive in your response, uh, we're going to reward you for that. In the Parker drilling case, they weren't aggressive in their time frame response. They were, however, aggressive in their remediation, uh, very aggressive. And Parker drilling, uh, as we commented on our last podcast was able to sustain what we thought was a much lower fine and penalty than perhaps the facts on the ground warranted. And here we have uh, time being used, I think, in a way. Um, unfortunately, from my perspective, I didn't realize that at the time. And um, so I really wasn't able to communicate. This is a clear message, guys. And uh, if you move quickly and efficiently, with a self-disclosure and your remediation of an incident, uh, you're going to be rewarded for that. And that's why I think this case is, is perhaps uh, deserves more than we give it uh, notoriety for today. I think that's right. I, and I, I think we shouldn't underestimate either that the, in, in the steps they took after discovering the conduct and kind of in, in connection with their discussions with the authorities, this worldwide review um, that they did, because this is something that we've I've personally been involved with for companies that have had FCPA issues is, is either a, while you're in discussions with the authorities or, or, or shortly thereafter, doing a, a review of your operations to, you know, if, if it's happening in one place, it could be happening in others. And, and we want to make sure that we're, we're discovering that and stopping it. I think that sends a really powerful message to, to which whatever regulator you're, you're talking to that we're really serious about making sure as we move forward from today, we've discovered the issues, we've stopped them. We now have this program in place that's enhanced uh, and we're moving forward on the right, in the right path. It, it's a really powerful message because, you know, this, while this fine is like we discussed relatively low, the costs overall, I'm sure were multiples uh, of that fine in terms of the, the initial investigation and then these follow on investigations around the world and all the compliance enhancements. And it just, it just, sends the right message to authorities that we'll spend the resources on this. We're very serious about making this right. So one of the criticisms up to the time of this resolution, I think, was the cost of investigations. We heard the phrase boiling the ocean. We even heard the DOJ use that phrase. You don't have to boil the ocean. How far can a company or should a company go? Should you have a, a plan we're going to look at Maybe four other countries, if nothing shows up, then we may re, uh, assess that we're okay. And if something shows up, we'll do a deeper dive. How do you help a client think through that so that there's a reasonable investigation but not an unreasonable cost? Yeah, I think it's uh, uh, this is where 
obviously it's very fact specific, but this is where a risk assessment can really can really um, uh, be beneficial, right? Let's based on the facts that we know following this incident, let's assess our risks worldwide. Oh, uh, you know, we we do business in four other countries that are sort of maybe high risk for corruption, or if this is a customs issue, you know, we use customs clearance agents in, in these three other countries. Let's make sure we look at, at those countries to make sure this issue is is been resolved. It doesn't mean we have to go to a to totally unrelated country where we handle customs, um, you know, in-house and, and we've had, there's, you know, low risk of corruption and make sure we investigate that as well. So a tailored risk assessment to really help identify some high risk areas. And it's not perfect. It doesn't mean you could, you've discovered everything, but it, it does mean that you, you've sort of, if you can cross off some of the higher risk areas, you can have more comfort that things are working well in other places. And then, you know, maybe what you do is you set up a plan to do spot audits or compliance checks in these in those other locations over the course of the next five years or, or whatever it might be. So you ultimately are touching upon your various operations around the world, but not doing a full investigation with collecting all the documentation and uh, putting boots on the ground. You know, I rolled through some of the things that both the DOJ and SEC said about the cooperation during the investigation. And I'd like to, to maybe end with some thoughts on things like bringing witnesses to the United States for interviews, providing translated documents, providing the key documents, and doing so in a timely manner. It seems to me these are almost now just the bare minimums, table stakes, whatever you may want to call it. In 2013, I'm not sure we were all thinking that way. Is is that an evolution you've seen? I, I, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think we, we now have enough – case law is not the right word, but we have, we have enough evidence in, in, in terms of these resolutions and what the DOJ and SEC have said. We have enough policy, specific policy statements on this issue to understand what is expected. That's It's not always what's delivered. And companies have various reasons for for various levels of cooperation. This is a U.S. company. You've got companies, you know, foreign companies who kind of ha have either culturally or, or there's some education time on the front end to describe to to discuss and, and explain how the process works. But I think we are now in a much, you know, almost 10 years later, uh, in, in a place where we have a, we have much more of a body of evidence to 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 know exactly what. The regulators are expecting in terms of, of cooperation, what that means in terms of witnesses and documents and, and everything else. Um, and, and so we're see, we see this more. I think if, if you look at, like I said, if you look at resolutions, particularly for the last few years where cooperation credit is given, they're going to talk about these same exact things. Um, I, I don't, I haven't done the research to say this was the first one, Tom, but, but I think this does stand out from the sort of early days of, of the aggressive FCPA enforcement. Uh, of a company really getting ahead of it and saying, we're going to, we are going to open up. We're going to cooperate fully. We're going to cooperate immediately. We're going to, we're going to self-disclose uh, and, and reaping the benefits really in the resolution. You know, in a lot of ways, um, this is an early model for, for the corporate enforcement program of exactly how this should work. If, if you do X, Y, and Z and Ralph Lauren did X, Y, and Z, we will reward you with, with a, uh, you know, now they say it's a, dec a declination. So m maybe if, if Ralph Lauren did this today, they would they would have gotten a declination from the DOJ. So that that's a great point because in retrospect, looking back at this, I see this as a direct precursor to the pilot program. And from what I know now, those discussions were ongoing inside the DOJ 
as to how to handle those situations and then how to put a policy that they could communicate to us. And and that was really the the next point I wanted to raise. Mike Volkoff always says the DOJ signals where they want to go. Uh, but kind of when I started in 07 uh, in this area up to this time, it really was reading some tea leaves. This was before Leslie Caldwell in 2015 uh, gave a series of speeches which said, we want to see these metrics. It's before the pilot program where the specific amount of credit was laid out for the actions you took or didn't take. And then, of course, moving forward uh, to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, et cetera. And so the communication was in this settlement agreement or both settlement agreements. It was just a bit difficult to uh, to design or uh, deign what exactly uh, they were, were trying to tell us. And maybe it was because part of it, uh, the fine and penalty was so low, we didn't really understand uh, that. Although, because if we worked through the calculation as you did, um, even under the sentencing guidelines, uh, this probably would have been a relatively minor fine and penalty uh, given the amount of bribes paid and the really lack of direct business generated uh, from sending the clothes uh, into Argentina. But clearly to me now, it was a precursor uh, to the pilot program and everything that, that came after as well. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and you know, the DOJ is having discussions about what they want to see, how they want to encourage companies to disclose and to cooperate. And, and you know, in the midst of those discussions, you have a company who kind of does exactly what they want, right? You can imagine them sitting sitting down talking about this and saying, geez, this is, this is, it'd be great if every company that we deal with did exactly this, right? Self-report within two weeks of, of receiving the allegation, provide full and complete cooperation on a timely basis, bring the witnesses to the U.S., translate documents, um, you know, do a enhanced compliance program and then a worldwide review so we can have comfort that this didn't happen in other places. And this, this is it. How do we reward them? And, and what they came up with here was was what they had, you know, available to them. And an MPA was a really a, a good result, I think, for Ralph Lauren at the time. And as as those you know as those conversations matured, and from this one and others, realizing you know when they did the pilot program, it was you know we'll do a presumption of a declination, and that is a that has evolved basically now into um, uh, you know even more of a presumption that that a declination will apply if you take all these steps, but. Um, it's it's it really is a precursor. I think is the right the right word, and this is all an evolution in terms of the DOJ's discussion, uh, along with the SEC. And uh, actually, if you look back, this was this was at a time when the SEC was really uh, talking and and um, putting out guidance on what they were looking for in terms of cooperation as well. So this was a good opportunity for them to to signal with their first ever DPA or NPA in an FCPA case that hey, this is exactly what we're looking for in terms of cooperation. So, Mike, uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but a lot to unpack from a relatively little-known enforcement action, but it, it may have been, the, as you said, precursor or harbinger of uh, some bigger things to come. Yeah, that's exactly right. Thanks, Tom. And I know we have, we have some more high-profile cases coming up that we're going to discuss, so looking forward to that as well.